You awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God! Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. Rock and roll bedtime stories exist to lay down some of those rumors that you've heard, those innuendos that are insinuated when you talk rock and roll with your friends, and you're like, is this even a real thing? We do the research. We get back to you. My name's Brian. Hey, I'm Murdoch. Aloha. And this week, um, wow, some sad news yesterday. We heard the passing of a legend, uh, Mr. Charlie Frank Pride. Tell me about your relationship to Charlie Pride, Murdoch. Um, well, easy. Growing, growing up, my parents pretty much just only listened to country music, you know, and there was four channels. So you would watch, you know, we didn't, I don't, I didn't really watch the Grammys till I got old enough to make my own decisions about watching music. But Charlie Pride was the first African-American guy like I, I saw performing on TV until I discovered like Solid Gold or, you know, any of those. Um, any of those like kind of like you know midday Saturday afternoon shows right um, and my dad despite being like an unbelievable magnificent racist never said anything <laughs> bad about Charlie Pride um, and the the guy had more than 30 number one hits and and I don't think that people really knew much about no no i mean uh, let's much about that. let's run those numbers right so he becomes the best-selling performer for rca records since elvis presley all right <laughs> so just yeah. think about that for a second so you are the head of rca records your biggest artist of all time is elvis who's literally the biggest artist of all time right like even bigger especially american bigger than the beatles in a lot of ways in terms of influence and just mass appeal for certain generations etc so elvis elvis is up there you just think about how he's changed culture forever. And then you, you go to number two. I don't think I ever would have guessed that Charlie Pride was their number two in terms of best selling. Yeah, I know. And and I don't know if you've ever seen a lot of interviews or you spent a lot, a lot of time hearing him talk when you're looking over any of this after he's passed away. But he's such a great interview and such a really delightful person to talk. And he did talk about race. Yep before people really were talking about it like very casually in interviews being very self-aware about the fact that people be like how does it feel to be the first negro country singer how does it feel to be the first black country singer you know and he he just kind of he rolled with that um without having to you know to deal with like what those underpinnings of what all that was about well, um, it, he was really about like he was just a he was a consummate performer. So and and we'll get into this, but given some of the places he chose to live throughout his life, like you know, I, he, I mean, he's made comments about this, right? Like he spent a lot of time in Montana, and he, yeah. and, and there's a a great quote where he says something about I, I really stuck out like a neon sign, like there just there just weren't any other black people. Like I was the only black people anybody knew, anyone knew in Montana. But I mean, back to the numbers during the peak year of his recording career you mentioned this he had 30 number ones right you realize yeah. 52 top tens he had 22 songs in the top 10 that didn't make it to number one i mean just that it's just insane he also won the entertainer of the year award at the cmas in 71 think about where we were as a country in terms of race in yeah. 71 uh and and he's winning a, an all-encompassing award from the country music folks and you know he's only 
one of three African Americans to this day to be a member of the Grand Ole Opry. Three. Yeah. And you know, this isn't what he wanted to do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he let's didn't... let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. What did he want to do? What was his? This was his second career. What was his first career, Mark? He wanted to be a pro baseball player. Do you know he played in Louisville? It, he played for the Louisville Clippers. Yeah, the, they, the Negro League. Yeah, they, they traded him to Birmingham in 1956 for a bus. Did you know this? <laughs> no. <laughs> True story. He got traded for a bus. And again, back to your point about how he spoke about the situation. He would bring that up in interviews as a punchline. Like, I'm probably one of the only players that ever got traded for a bus. I mean, but I honestly, we need to stop there for a second and just say that out loud. Like, how ridiculous is that? Like, maybe there's something I don't know, but I really doubt there were white players being traded for automobiles. Like, I, I just no. can't imagine that that was something that happened. No, and and it could have been really humiliating, and, and maybe it was. And maybe he just thought it was hilarious. I mean, it's just completely ridiculous. I know he did – I know he – he was trying to become a pro baseball player and it was like Willie Mays era. This is like early sixties. So 50. So he starts in the fifties. He plays in, in several different ball clubs. He, he makes it to Louisville. He gets traded to Birmingham. And then in 1956, he gets drafted into the army. And so he, yeah. oh, that's right. he goes to the army. He actually plays baseball for the army. And they actually win his team in the army wins some <laughs> like like some championship thing that they're doing, you know, and then um, he tries to go back after he gets out of base or out of the army. He tries to go back into baseball. But while he was in the army, I mean, he did something to his arm. His arm was never right again. He just he didn't he didn't get his throwing arm back. So he is in Memphis in 58. So he gets out. He's in Memphis at some point, like I think traveling and he sees Sun Studios and he's like always kind of sung on the side. And he's like, I got to I got to go to Sun and record something. And you can still I think there's like a box set somewhere where this original recording exists. But there's like one recording that still exists where he is singing in um, Sun Studios. Which is just crazy to think about yeah. all of that. Yeah, and it puts it in perspective that way. And really, like, he – so he never made it. Like, he got kind of close to being a pro baseball player. But at some point, someone discovered that he could sing. He knew he could sing. And then I, I, I thought there was, like, another – baseball coach yeah 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 so here's the here's the, here's what happens so this is this is so great like this literally seems like um like a biopic you would watch and think that they made a large portion of this part kind of up just for the story because it's so good um so in in memphis he records with son and then he is going around in 58 trying to get back into baseball he tries out for the Mets and the Angels and, and it should be stated that before this he was in the Negro Leagues so that was a thing right like we forget that now yeah. but he wasn't playing in with like the Mets and the Angels he was playing with the Clippers and the, you know like these other teams that don't exist anymore and there's no like real um, way to compare them so he moves to Montana all yeah. right and because he's he's kind of giving up and he uh, on on the like the professional side of this, but he gets this offer in Montana from this guy who owns a smelting factory, and and he's he's like, 
I own the smelting factory and I also spot, I love baseball. And so I sponsor this semi-pro team in, in my town and he actually keeps, <laughs> this is like such old, old school, like, um, small town, uh, good old boy type of thing to do. He keeps 18 spots at the smelting factory for baseball players. And then he like finds these people, gives them a job, sets them up pretty nicely with money, and then they also get played to pay base, play baseball. And there, do you know what the team, the name of the team is? The sem- literally a semi-pro baseball team in, in the early 60s. The Memphis had the Sox, right? Yeah, or- no, this isn't Memphis. This is Montana. Oh, oh, I don't know. It's, I'm not sure. It's the Smelterites. <laughs> I literally can't make this up. So, so this is where I, I I shove all this in because we're gonna get to where you just were, which is who overhears him singing. This guy, this guy overhears him singing at some point and is pretty impressed. And this guy, I love this guy. I gotta figure out who this guy is. Like most of the things I've read, just kind of reference that there was a relationship with a person here. But like this guy needs his own biopic because he runs a smelting factory. He in. in, in incorporates his passion for baseball and then he has a good enough ear to where he's like hey guy uh you not only are pretty good doing this smelting stuff you're pretty darn good at baseball and i think you're pretty good at singing and i am going to optimize all three of those things for my personal financial gain (laughs) so so he convinces charlie to start singing before baseball games and oh my gosh and so he's paying him at the smelting factory and then he's paying him $10 a baseball game. Now, this is 1968 money, but that's still not a ton of money. He's paying him 10 bucks a game. And then yeah. he says, if you show up and for 15 minutes as an opening attraction to the baseball game, you will sing, I will pay you another $10. So he doubles his money. <laughs> and so 10 to play the game, 10 to sing for 15 minutes before the first pitch. And then... The guy is, like, encouraging him. So, like, he has any spare time, given all of the extracurriculars he's doing, he puts together a band. Charlie himself puts together a band called the Nighthawks. And they start playing around the area in Montana. So he's smelting and playing baseball and playing music. And at the same time, he's starting a family. Like, he has a wife at this point and moves her to Montana with him. and And he actually is, like starting to make a little bit of money so he's a black guy in the early 60s not the late 60s the early 60s with like three jobs <laughs> kind of holding it down and he buys a house i mean again black men in wow. america like it's it's a really interesting evolution here um and, and they eventually start to move they move to a, a different city that's closer to the airport because he's starting to get opportunities to to go places with the Nighthawks and play music. So all this stuff is happening at the same time. Real quick, how gross as an occupation is smelting, like and dangerous. Yeah, and I've got a friend that's from Missoula, and um, it sounds like hard work. <laughs> Dude, it's it's terrible work. And so I, I again like this guy who owns this smelting factory i just love that he's like built in all of these value ads to get people to do his dirty work his literal dirty work um (laughs) so around this time he's playing with the nighthawks and he cuts a demo tape and do you know who heard his demo tape and got him like who is the connector into the music industry for him at this point ah um no I, i don't know who it is no 
Chet Atkins. Oh, it's, oh, it's Chet Atkins. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, because he worked at RC. He worked at RC in Nashville. He owned that studio. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, that's it. And so you just connected the dots. So he he calls his parent company RCA Victor, who has a pretty decent presence in the country music industry at this point, and. Also, the other connection, so this is one connection. The other connection that was already working in his favor is Charlie just happened to know to be friends with this guy in Montana who owned the radio station. Like, it's Montana. There's not a lot of radio stations, I don't think, at the time. So one of the the main ones this guy owns, and he's like, well, give me me that demo tape. And he starts playing it. And uh, so, yeah, Chet Atkins hears it. He gets him to RCA. RCA signs him. And releases his first single in 66. Do you know what his first single was? His his first single, uh, was it just Between You and Me? Because that was the big, was so big one before. That's the big one, but that doesn't come at first. The okay. first one is a song that I had never heard before, and it is called Snakes Crawl at Night. Do you know this ah, song? No, and that's weird. Here we go. All right, good. <laughs> oh, the snakes crawl at night. That's what they say. When the sun goes down, then the snakes will play. I know you're going to be shocked to hear that this was not a big hit. Nah, nah, the snakes. No, the snakes crawl at night did not do big things for Charlie Pride's career. But uh, you, and I just, I'm wondering, like, who pitched him that song? Who was like, this is the song. You know what I mean? We're not even going to get into this, but like, what are the politics at that point? And songwriters pitching to singers in country music and like, like they're being a black guy. Right? Yeah, like, who's gonna pitch? Who's gonna pitch him a good song? I, I, I mean, I have no idea. So um, that doesn't work. And then they try another song called "Before I Met You," and that doesn't work either. So his third single is the song that you mentioned, yeah, which is a little tune that changes Charlie's life. Which again, like his life has already changed so much. I mean, when you think about the fact that he was going to be a baseball player, I mean, this is just this whole, his whole story is just uh, uh, unbelievable. It's, it's amazing. But this, yeah. but the, the song that happens next is a little song called just between you and me. So I feel so blue Sometimes I want to die This was like on the radio and, so and as a kid you know, This kind of everything Everything sounded like this Yeah, it's really funny So we both worked in country radio And we both at one point worked around and with a station That played specifically classic country Which of course this kind of is a signifier of It's that sound you're talking about, right? Like everything yeah. in the 60s and 70s Kind of sounded like this And um yeah, I mean, you can tell he's got a good voice, right? Yeah, but, like, this sure. is kind of what everything sounds like. It's a very definitive voice that, in terms of, like, country music, is up there with George Jones. Yeah, absolutely. So this song just completely puts him on the map. In all, I mean, like, in the most literal of senses, right? Um, he is nominated for a Grammy for that song. <laughs> Like it happens that quickly for him. Um, And so let's talk for a second about the whole 
the race factor, right? Yeah, sure. Now we just listened to a couple of his tracks, and I don't think it jumps out of the out of the speakers that you're listening to an African American man sing. No. So in the late summer of '66, this song has just taken off, and he is booked to play a large show in Detroit's Olympia Stadium. And again, we won't get too far into this, but there when they pitch when RC Victor puts him out, they don't put out pictures at first. They don't put out bio information. They just say it's Country Charlie Pride. That's how they booked him. Country Charlie Pride. Yeah. And so ten thousand country fans show up to this show and none of them know that they're about to watch a black guy. <laughs> and it's so sixty six, so not sixty eight, right? Like just think about where we are in terms of civil rights and all this. Yeah. And um so <laughs> he's done great interviews about this since then. And uh, he says, like, he basically walks out on stage and just everyone's, you know, they're like, country, Charlie Pride. And everyone's cheering. They're just stoked to see this guy. And he walks out on stage and, like, it just slowly stops. <laughs> and I figure it out. Yeah. Oh, no, and, the wizard. And- and he looks he looks out at this crowd like think of this being this guy on this stage 10,000 people and he says i in this interview later i told the audience friends i realize it's a little unique me coming out here with a permanent suntan to sing country and western to you that's just the way it is did you hear the story? Did you ever? Because I didn't hear about this at all until the last, you know, twenty-four hours. Did you know he played a gig the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated? No, I don't know this story. Tell me. Right. So the story that everyone knows because it's on film is is James Brown performed in Boston, and you know that the they they had that on they shot that for local tv and people got on stage and james brown had to chill out that audience it was like a very visually angry crowd right who now knows that martin luther king is dead so i've seen that thing and watched that a couple times it's it's chilling and amazing and james brown you know saving that town you know, keeping giving people hope and talking to them. And so he had a gig and his wife and manager had talked about it and he decided to go ahead and have it and to go do the gig. And he he mentioned to a reporter about that night that he he was getting in a taxi and he, he swore he overheard the taxi driver say, We got him. We got that Martin Luther King and I'm about to get another one in my car right now. So he said that, you know, you never heard him saying things about that were incredibly racist. And you hear that and you could tell he was kind of like, all right, well, you know, it happens all the time. Right. And he went out on stage that night and had the same very eerie reception that he got at the beginning of the night that you just mentioned. And he didn't he just did the gig. And then at the end, they gave him a standing ovation. Yeah, I mean, he was really into this winning them over with with the work thing. Yeah, yeah, right. And and it, he and he did. Well, yeah, he did to the extent that in 1967 he becomes the first black performer to to appear on the Grand Ole Opry, right? Like so, later in his career he joins it, but he actually gets to appear for the first time in 67, which is pretty quick. Again, 66 is when just between you and me takes off. And at that point, the only other African American that had ever been. Um, 
was a was a founding member to Ford Bailey. And that was nineteen forty one. Which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a long so, time ago. That's a lot of white people getting up there and singing with <laughs> Minnie Pearl and Grandpa or whatever the heck his name was. So so let's talk about how fast his star rises. Okay, so 66 is when this first single happens. In between 69 and 71, he has eight singles that reach number one. So eight of those eight of those 30 happen in a two-year period. And wow. in, in 71, he releases, which what I think we all know and love as his kind of definitive work, he releases Kiss and Angel Good Morning. Whenever I chance to meet some old friends on the street They wonder how does a man get to be this way Like, you cannot overstate how massive this song was. I mean, I think yeah, we forget. because it was, it was it's not invasive. Like a, yeah. yeah, it's not a song like you hear in Kroger that much anymore, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's not It's not like one of those. Uh, but at the time, just a massive hit. You've got to kiss an angel good morning let her know you think about her when you're gone. That was a top 40 pop song, too. Well, that was the crossover. and so that's that's where we're headed, right? Like, he kind of becomes a pop star at this point, which is crazy. And, I mean, we should know, right? Rock and roll bedtime stories. We typically talk about things more squarely in the lane of rock and roll, but I feel like it's important to talk about him for a couple of reasons. One of them, just the outsized influence and this crossover appeal, that he eventually becomes this unlikely hero of a a former baseball player. So, I mean, it's a little later in his life, right? I mean, we're in the 70s. He's born in the... I mean, you know, so he's not, like, super young. And he's already done the sports thing. Um, and it is a million-selling crossover single. And million-selling in the time that when people had to buy stuff. You know what I mean? In 1971. Yeah. That's, a, that's a big yeah. deal. And he wins Entertainer of the Year. That's the year that does it. And Top Male Vocalist. And then he wins Top Male Vocalist again in 72. So he is, he's, not, he's at the top of country music. He's becoming a mainstream pop star. And right now, I want to pause Charlie Pride's story with this setup that he's at the top of his game, and I want to take a hard right turn in this conversation. I'm ready. Into international political history. That's why everyone listens to this show, right? Because we (laughs) do such good coverage of international political history. Yeah, but what we're about to dive into here is totally bizarre and awesome. I mean, so so, so this is really, I mean, this blew my mind blew my mind when I started reading up on Charlie Pride Um, and the significance of what we're about to talk about and literally kind of like how we help change international political at least like the um, like the political environment of the time a little bit right he like went to the UK and his manager booked him a couple dates in Ireland and yeah. like they, did, yeah. they weren't booking concerts yeah okay hold on we're gonna get there but let's talk about let's set up what's happening in Ireland right now this is how much do you know about the Northern Ireland conflict? You know, not terribly a lot, but thanks, Bono. So but go ahead. Right. So and we'll talk about Bono in a second. Um, you can't talk about you can't do a rock and roll podcast, land yourself in Ireland and then not bring up you two at all. So th- that will happen. But let's. So I've read several novels, just kind of not meaning to like things that have, have been out and around and fallen into my hands and on my bookshelf. 
that have used this as a backdrop, right? And there's like one season of Sons of Anarchy that gets real deep into the Irish conflict stuff. <laughs> so like what I'm telling you is I'm not a historical scholar and I'm not necessarily should be your go-to resource for all of this. If you want to learn more, there is a lot out there you can you can read and jump into. But they called this, evidently their conflicts in Ireland have to be as it have to be named like they're a cool rock band uh, because they it's basically kind of referred to as the troubles <laughs> which i just think of as like yeah, man. yeah right it just sounds like a great bar band um but a lot of tension that lasts for a lot of years and it boils down to the key issue of the constitutional status of northern ireland basically think of ireland as a big landmass the top of it is northern ireland ireland and the rest of it is its own thing it's ireland but the top of it technically reports over to britain so it's part yep. of the united kingdom and so there is ongoing tension about kind of strangers in their own land right so they're they're physically located over here but they pledge allegiance to britain and the rest of the land mass is their own thing and what makes this tougher the conflict has two main camps the unionists and the nationalists but they get conflated with religion I mean, I know it's going to shock you that there has been lots of bloodshed and war over the ideas of religion, but bear with me. Um, the Unionists are Protestants, and they want Northern Ireland to stay with the UK. And the Nationalists are mostly Catholics, and they want to join a united Ireland and make this landmass all report and be its own thing, right? So the minority are the Irish Catholics, the Northern, the nationalists. And then they, they're kind of persecuted for their views. And so there's a civil rights movement that comes about to bring awareness to the discrimination that's happening, right? And there start to be protests and there start to be people who are upset and there starts to be unruliness that then brings in police and then there is violence from the police. I know this all sounds so unfamiliar. I just cannot relate in America in <laughs> yeah, 2020. It's just history repeating itself I all mean, the time. What, how, you know, this is 1972 and how can I relate it to 2020? I just can't, I can't figure it out. Anyway, so uh, police show up and brutal people. Government authorities try to downplay and hide the police brutality. Again, this is so shocking. I've just never heard of this. Eventually, the British Army comes to try to help, right? Because they're like, oh, well, technically, part of this is us. So they come and they make everything worse. And the protests get more out of hand. And there's a particular protest that goes awry. On Sunday, January 30th, 1972, 26 people get shot, 13 die, and it becomes known as what? Sunday, bloody Sunday. Sunday, bloody Sunday. Now, let's veer back to rock and roll real quickly, right? We've been kind of on the side of the road. We're going to veer back into the main lane. There is a huge musical impact that happens immediately due to this particular thing happening in the world. Paul McCartney is of Irish descent. He records the first song two days after the incident, and it's called Give Ireland Back to the Irish. 1972... Later that year, John Lennon puts out an album called Sometime in New York City, and it has a song on it called Sunday Bloody Sunday. And there's also a song called The Luck of the Irish. 
which dealt more with the Irish conflict in general. Now, to go back to a band we talked about just a few weeks ago, Black Sabbath. Geezer Butler, also of Irish descent, writes the lyrics to the Black Sabbath song, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath in 1973 and he states the Sunday Bloody Sunday thing had just happened in Ireland when the British troops opened fire on the Irish demonstrators so I came up with the title Sabbath Bloody Sabbath and sort of put it in how the band was feeling at the time yeah and of course as you've already mentioned Bono. U2 puts the whole thing in the brain of American kids like me and you in 1983 with their iconic song that you still belt out every time you hear it right Sunday Bloody Sunday so Charlie Pride in this is what? <laughs> so when things happen like this, there's a larger fallout, right? And sometimes we forget to examine this. And one of the things is that it basically culturally isolates Northern Ireland. It's become so violent that no one wants to travel there. So if you are a musician, you might play in Ireland, Ireland, but you don't go up, even though they're, it's all right there. So, if you don't live there, you don't go there. That's the mantra. In 1975, so that Sunday Bloody Sunday is January of 72. Let's think about the timeline. We're going to 75. So, it's been about three years. And there's still, I mean, and, and the wider context here that you need to remember is the Irish conflict starts around 1968. And it basically, the troubles, as they are called, don't end until almost the year 2000. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, it's unbelievable. So this is just a few years in. Things are still very cumbersome and worrisome and violent, so violent. And anything you do read fiction or nonfiction about this conflict and all of the things that were happening really will focus in on the, the level of violence. The um, Remember that movie, The Devil's Own? That was about the troubles nope. um that brad pitt and harrison ford i think in it in the 90s anyway it, you know there's just constant fear of violence and so people are not going there so it's 75 and charlie pride's agent sells a 40-day tour package to the u to a uk booking agent so a little bit of inside baseball right so you're putting together this you're you you are charlie pride and you hire somebody to basically sell concerts sell your appearances and he gets a cut and you get a cut and everybody that's on the tour gets a cut and you know it's, it's how people make money especially now but even then and so this guy is like okay we're gonna we're gonna go international on this tour he's so big this song is the, his song is still big right and yeah. um, and he keeps pumping out more songs we're only talking about a couple of them here but he's he literally has 30 number one hits so when he sells the tour the guy he sells it to in the UK turns and sells four dates of it to, so 10%, to Jim Aiken. And Jim Aiken is an Irish guy. And nobody is touring in Northern Ireland, but Aiken has this idea. He's like, at some point, somebody has got to break this like unofficial thing that's happening like there's not it's not like no one's allowed but no one will go and no one has gone for eh, three to five years at this point and they have become very isolated so he goes from ireland to ohio 
in the winter of 75 to sit down in person with Charlie Pride and say, will you please come play in Belfast? Hmm. So there is a great article that we will put in the show notes that ran a couple of years ago. I want to say it was in 17 in a Belfast newspaper where pride was coming back to play in Belfast and they had a conversation with him about how important this day was. There's also a great, there's a late, late show there where they had Charlie pride on around this same time. And he, um, they bring a couple of people to kind of talk with Charlie about the impact of this. And he says it's, it's great. Because in this article, Charlie says, I didn't realize what I was getting into. I had no idea that there was a difference between Northern Ireland and the South of Ireland. Um, Jim Aiken flew from Belfast to look me in the eye at one of my sold out shows in Ohio and said, I'm Jim Aiken and your Belfast gigs are sold out. We love you and you got to come. And he told me how much people there loved me and that nobody would hurt me. And I said, what do you mean? (laughs) So he convinces him to make the trip. And he says, I did Dublin first. And I remember someone saying, dude, you don't need to go to Belfast. So like he, he's literally in the South of Ireland and they're like, no, 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 no. You're going where next? Like all, even though it had been sold out up there, people are still trying to tell him no. And he's like, but it's like 150 miles away. Like, why are you, why is there such a division? Yeah. So he says he gets to Belfast and he's in a Jaguar with Jim Aiken. And they have to go through a military checkpoint to get into Belfast. Yeah. And Jim's like leaning out of the Jaguar like, hey, it's Charlie Pride, like telling the soldiers. <laughs> and, and then they go in and they check into the Europa Hotel. And uh, he goes, hey, I want to go out and like sightsee. And Jim's like, no, <laughs> you're not leaving the hotel. Like, you do not understand what's happening. But, but he says, uh, this again is Charlie, direct quote. But I did see soldiers riding along with guns sticking out of those little things. And by the third show, I had a better grasp of the politics. I remember I sat on a stool to sing crystal chandeliers. And I got to thinking about the people coming to see me when there was all this trouble going on. And I got very emotional. And I don't do fake tears. I sing songs. And I like it that it can bring people together. Do you know the song Crystal Chandeliers? Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah, so, sure. So Crystal Chandeliers, not ever meant to be a, a, a single. That was, that was an album cut. And he sings it at this concert. And it becomes emblematic of this entire situation for him and for the folks in Northern Ireland. Here it is. Oh, the crystal chandeliers light up the paintings on your wall. Marble statuettes are standing. My dad really loves this song. So it's funny because it's not like super somber or, you know, has some kind of deep underlying emotion. But because of, I mean, this is the song he associates with those series of concerts and with kind of the changing tide he was bringing in. And so here's what happens. They release this song in Ireland and it becomes a huge hit for him. Um 
and he becomes kind of a hero for this whole situation for being the first person to break the effective touring concert ban. And in, and what happens is Jim Aiken is now able to go and say, hey, Charlie Pride came and everything was fine. And it opens up touring and culture back in Northern Ireland. I mean, yeah. just... Un- unbelievably significant. It, international politics from a Negro League baseball player who never thought he'd be a singer. Like, I mean, it's just, it's like one of the greatest stories of in music history. I just, I love it so, so much. I love it so much. Did you know that they were going to make a biopic of him? Uh, yeah. Um, who's, did they, did they cast it yet? So they tried in 2008 to do this, and the writer strike happened and it got shelved. Um, but he's, he has said in interviews that Terrence Howard was going to play him. Yeah. Yeah. He, decent. he said yeah. they, they basically were telling Terrence Howard it was going to get him an Oscar. <laughs> so I don't yeah, know. I'd love, I mean, to, I'd love to hear Terrence Howard. I wonder if Terrence Howard, especially in the next few days, will be asked about that, if that's common yeah. knowledge enough. Yeah, and, and it's going to, you know, it, it's one of those artists that people don't, yeah, you know, it's different. People knew who Tom Petty and Prince were because of like the worldwide span of appeal of sort of pop music. Charlie Pride's a country and Western singer, man. Yeah. Um, people people are going to slowly learn more about him if, if it actually gets through the news cycle that, about how significant he was. Um, Darius Rucker would clearly maybe not have ever been on stage in Hooting the Blowfish, but definitely wouldn't have decided to have a solo career as a country artist. He's number three. He's number three. And, you know, I remember we were working in country radio when, when that all happened. And I remember thinking it felt like a lazy comparison. And now realizing that no one else has done it, it's the only comparison. Yeah, I, I mean, it. that's crazy to me. It was DeFord Bailey, Charlie Bride, and and Darius Rucker. They're the, they're the three African-Americans in the Grand Ole Opry. I always wondered if Darius was an Aquarius. You can keep moving on. Sorry, Ben. Easy joke. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think the last thing we need to mention, because we're talking about how culturally relevant Charlie Pride has been over the last 80 years, um, is what a sad way to be culturally relevant in your death. Uh, yeah, COVID-19. And, yeah, and, and currently, I mean, it's misinformation's everywhere with everything. But... There were a lot of country artists that bailed out of that award ceremony because they got sick. CMAs you're talking about. Um, oh, yeah, the CMAs. Sorry. Um, that was his last performance. Um, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people were pointing to like, well, why did that have to be his last performance? Yeah. I mean, he had to get on a plane, but he did have to make those decisions himself. Um, but there were a lot of people who would who had decided even the day of the CMAs not to go because someone was positive within their bubble or in their group. Wow. Um, several, several people. And that was a maskless uh, event in Nashville because, uh, you know, editorializing, if I may, that piece of garbage, Governor Bill Lee in Tennessee, who's a worthless science denying idiot, decided not to have a mask mandate. And they have a lot of cases in Tennessee. And, you know, we lost Charlie Pride. I mean, may not even got it there. His his reps are saying he was negative afterwards. Um, but, you know, that's probably how he wanted his boots on at the end. Right. Uh, wouldn't you think so? Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's crazy to think about the level of like, it's almost like a little bit like that Forrest Gump ridiculousness where he's like in the pictures of all these famous historical moments like there's a little bit of a Charlie Pride through line there of like Charlie Pride's just like in in the room for like these major moments in history and for him for this to be what takes him out is is sad Um, but also it's just crazy to think like this guy who was in his 80s and had seen all of this saw this worldwide pandemic as well. I mean, I think about that with like my grandmother who's in her nineties thinking like how many, how much, what massive changes she's seen social, socially, culturally, politically, just in terms of technology and all sorts of things. And then like now to be stuck in her house, you know, uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, not being able to talk to my aunt, like, you know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Yeah. And, I, I do think that hopefully just, you know, more people will learn, you know, more about him because of all this. And and that's that's great. I'm, I'm glad that's that's possibly a thing. Well, we've done our part. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's true. We have. Um, I, I have. And thanks for bringing Charlie into here. So, dude, uh, I, I'm very excited. Uh, what what Charlie song should we play the episode out on? What do you want to hear? What have we missed? What's the what's one of the big thirty that we missed that we need to mention? Um, I'm like, you don't want to play "Kiss an Angel Good Morning" again. Um, I mean, I remember hearing that song multiple times in a day. All right, we'll do kid. it. We'll do it. Uh, oh, okay. he did a. Uh, um, yeah, do it. Do it. <laughs> Whenever I chance to meet some old friends on the street. They wonder how does a man get to be this way I've always got a smiling face Anytime in any place And every time they ask me why I just smile and say You've got to kiss an angel good morning And let her know you think about her when you're gone if you got something you want us to research or you want us to do the work on, let us know. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Find out everything we are doing at wearethestoryguys.com. And until next time, what do people need to be doing, Murdoch? Telling stories, everybody. But some of them never learn. It's a simple thing. The secret I'm speaking of.